So if you're not already there, turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'm going to start reading um, in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So as I was studying this passage, I was thinking about rich, riches and wealth and um, did a little Google search and discovered that in 2013, hoarding disorder was added to the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. Hoarding is now a mental disorder in our country, and it is a growing crisis. You have three times the amount of people who have Alzheimer's are diagnosed with hoarding disorder, have, have hoarding disorder, and in multiple cities, they are open, opening up um, intervention programs because a lot of, um, some of the people who struggle with hoarding um, live in government housing, and you can't, they have to pass certain inspections in order to keep their government housing. And so there's a lot of people who are getting evicted because of how extreme the hoarding is, and so people have opened up agencies to help um, with this disorder, to help with this problem. Um, just to give you an idea of how serious hoarding is, um, an, a first-time responder will take them an hour and 20 minutes to get through the home to the victim versus five minutes in an uncluttered home, right? That's what it, we're, we're, it's extreme, right? An hour and 20 minutes versus five for a normal home, okay? On the other side, there are the extremely wealthy, right? And I, so I looked up lottery winners. I just thought, okay, let's just talk about, you know, something like somebody who wins that crazy mega jackpot. And I found, and it just was story after story after story, so just some highlights here, that one woman in Canada who won $10 million is now having to ride the bus, rent a home, and work part-time because she is completely bankrupt. Another man lost it all in gambling, which I actually thought kind of made sense. If you win at gambling, doesn't necessarily surprise me that you'd lose at gambling. Um, another $10 million winner in Canada spent it all on friends and everything, and he had to work heavy labor to basically to, to make ends meet at the end, living with his parents <laughs> because he couldn't afford a home, working heavy labor, and he just eventually committed suicide. One woman won the lottery immediately without telling her husband, filed for divorce. Um, they got divorced, and somehow through paperwork that got sent to him, not her, after the divorce was completed, he found out she never disclosed the winnings, because that's why she divorced him, to keep all the winnings. And so he sued her, and he got it all. He got it all. So there you go. One man killed his wife when she won the lottery because she gave $2 million of it to a child that she had that he didn't know she had. And another brother put a hit out on his brother won the lottery. So the brother who didn't win the lottery put a hit out on his brother, hoping he'd get an inheritance when his brother died. So those are just a few things that money and loving stuff and things has produced in our culture. And you might be thinking, but I'm not rich. Do you have, well, you all have clothes, you're wearing them, okay? And do you have shelter? Do you know where you're going to sleep tonight? And do you wonder where your lunch is coming from, or do you know? Because if you know where your next meal is coming from, and you have clothes on your body, and you know where you're sleeping, then Jesus says you're rich. If you have more than your basic necessities, then God says you're rich. And just for a statistic, I looked it up and it says today, if you make more than $52,000, if you make $52,000 annually, or even combined, you and your spouse, 
you are in the top 1% of wealth in the world. 1% of wealth in the world. So I think we kind of think, oh, I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not like these Hollywood stars who, you know, get $300 million or this NFL player who... We are wealthy, and this passage is not something that applies to other people. So our first point today is wisdom concerning riches. Wisdom concerning riches. Heavenly wisdom concerning riches. So we've already kind of looked at it, but Christians often have two extreme responses to money. One is to live well, like a hermit or a monk. It's where the monastic movement came from. Give it all away. Money, possessions, it's evil, it's wrong, it's bad, don't have them. You know, and, and basically go live like a hermit or a monk in very you know, austere circumstances. And the other one is it's all a blessing from God, right? If you love God, he's in prayer of Jabez kind of thing. He's going to expand your borders, right? We can have stuff and we can have money and it's just a blessing because God loves me, right? So we can have kind of these two extremes. So as we go through this passage, James has many warnings for the rich, and he characterizes them. But I want to just give us one little caveat before we start, because there's kind of an automatic, unspoken question that comes up when you read this passage, and it is, is having money wrong, right? Is, is being wealthy a sin? And so, no, it's not. Right? And right away, we probably all think of Job, right? Job was a righteous man who did not sin. Well, not that he didn't sin, but you know, God is saying to Satan, like, look at Job. There's none righteous like him on the earth. And he was incredibly wealthy, right? And God says in um, the book of Exodus to Moses, it is God who gives the ability to make wealth, right? It, God gives us that ability. Um, he blessed Abraham with riches over and over and over again. Um, he told Solomon he would have given him more riches. He wanted obedience. I think it was Solomon. Um, and even in our own, in our closer to home, um, many, many of you have heard of R.J. Um, Letourneau. Um, a very, very wealthy Christian businessman, did tons of Christian, um, Christian charity work, opened universities, did tons with his, very wealthy, but he, gave, he lived on 10% and gave away 90, right? He just, that was his, he, was, he just used his money over and over and over and over again for the kingdom. So there are examples and exceptions. Um, Jesus' ministry was supported by wealthy widows, um, some, some, not entirely, but there were wealthy widows who strongly supported his ministry and financed him, right? So money is not evil, Right? It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, and Christ makes it clear you can't serve God and money. And the struggle with money is that we quickly find our security and our satisfaction in it. Right? So what is wrong is to place our value in things and in living to have things. So here in James, we're going to see characteristics of one who loves money. And the first thing we need to realize is that Weep and how we'll write for the miseries that are coming upon you. Why are miseries coming upon us? Because money, Rick Holland says, is dangerous. It can blind us to the eternal spiritual values, and it can lead to false security, right? It can lead you. You can't love God and money, and it is a very, it is a seductress. It is very easy to sleep in and make you love it and focus on it. Often throughout Scripture, riches are synonymous with unrighteousness. Read through the Proverbs. They're very often linked. Again, general truth, not one for one, but often synonymous with unrighteousness in Scripture. Why are these riches and mis misery coming? Because wealth without reference to God will only lead to selfish indulgence, and that will only lead to judgment. Wealth without reference to God will only lead to selfish indulgence, and that will only lead to judgment. Again, quoting Rick Holland. Wealth without reference to God will only lead to selfish indulgence, and that will only lead to judgment. You start noticing that the stuff you have starts to control you, 
right? It starts to, you have to maintain it. You have to take care of it. It breaks and you have to replace it. The more you have, and even the nicer things you buy, if you buy um, a nicer home or more square footage or a bigger yard, you're going to have to have bigger equipment to mow that yard. You're going to have to, like, the more you have, the more it takes to have. The more it takes to maintain, the more it takes to um, standard, to be even a good steward of it, right? You don't want to let it just fall into disrepair. And so, it's, stuff can be addictive. I mean, whoever, and this is kind of outdated because now we all download our music, but whoever bought a, a music CD and thought, never buying another one, that is going to satisfy all of my music needs for life. Any of you have any clothes from 20 years ago you're just as happy wearing today as you were then? I mean, now, do, things do wear out. I'm not saying they don't. But you're, when is, what is the thing that you bought that you're like, that's it, I'm satisfied, done? Done. And you know, sometimes I make fun of the people who never update their homes, but maybe they're on to the right idea. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe there are some things that just can be, and it doesn't matter if they go in and out of style. Like, they're just, there might be a spiritual lesson there <laughs> that I've overlooked in my life because it takes a lot to maintain, right? So are we being controlled by our things and our stuff? So one, two, if, the first point was, if you have wealth without reference to God, you're going to be self-indulgent that leads to judgment. The next thing is the more stuff you have, the more it corrodes. That's what this point is. Right? It corrodes. It falls apart. You've laid up treasure for the last days, it says. And it's, and it's kind of the same as that parable where Jesus says this man built the big barns and he put all of his wealth in the barns and he said, here's how I'm going to live, and then he died. What was the purpose of all that wealth when it was the end, right? He's like, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming soon. You're storing up wealth for, <laughs> what is gold in heaven? It's pavement, <laughs> Right? So what are we saving up our money for? Now, I'm not against savings or retirement fund. I know we need to live. I'm not trying to, but I think our extreme is to put the security there and to not think, how am I making it work for the kingdom, okay? So our stuff can control us and it leads to decay. Our stuff can lead to false security that leads to judgment as we're trusting in it and not the Lord. Our riches can also often lead to abuse of the poor, right? Because here it says the laborers are crying out. The rich and the wealthy weren't even paying their laborers the harvest. And back in that culture, many commentators said a day laborer who wasn't getting paid, their families were dying. He wasn't, he wasn't if you weren't paying your laborers, they were living meal to meal. <laughs> they, were li they weren't living in this wealth. They were living much more, how to, this is my day's wage, this is what I'm living off of. If you're not paying them, that could have had life and death consequences. They also, verse 6 implies, because they're condemning them, that they were using the courts to protect their wealth and subvert justice, right? And then finally, what happens when you love wealth and you, and you use your wealth without reference to God? Again, Rick Collins says, the final step of the wickedness of riches is to sacrifice all morality up to and including murder. And I just had to read you a few of the lottery lists to say that's not an exaggeration, right? Up to and including murder. In fact, honestly, most you know, spy thriller movie plot, it's all about follow the money. Right? It is the motivation of the world system, right? It is the motivation of the world system. So if it's not wrong to have money, but it's wrong to love it and to place our value in it and to have it without reference to God, how should we think about money? A few questions and examples. Um, what are our, so here's some questions again that Rick Holland asked that I just used to kind of motivate our thoughts as we're trying to apply this to our life. What are our motivations behind our thoughts on money? Is your first thought about you and what you want? Or is it about others in the kingdom of God? I have to confess, my husband got um, a small bonus the other day. And he came home and he's like, Katie, I'm, I got a bonus for, for work for the year. And I'm, guess what? We're going to be able to give more. 
And I, that was not my first thought. <laughs> I was thinking about how we'd repaired a roof this year, how we had to buy, we had all these home repairs, <laughs> tons of them. And my money went like, oh, God's providing for the home repairs. And Dan's thinking, we can get more, right? So what is our first thought behind our money? Another question, do you spend more on yourselves than on others? I mean, there's a discretionary spending, right? Obviously, we have to pay our home mortgages and we have to feed our families and, and the bulk of our money will go to cost of living, right? But with our discretionary money, do you spend more on yourself or more on others? Do you listen for needs? I remember one Christmas, um, I was in college, Becky, I remember this Christmas, and um, there was a family at our church who couldn't get their kids Christmas presents and their kids were younger where that was a bigger deal. And we didn't have a ton extra money at that time, so my parents sat us down and said, what do you think about giving up your Christmas presents so that we can give it to them? Well, what are you going to say? It's Christmas, right? Like, no, 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 we want our presents. We all kind of did want our presents, but we all said the right thing. And we said, no, no, give it to them. But my parents were listening. They were listening to the needs. They were thinking about the needs. And, and that's what we did. They got our, our Christmas gifts that year. And they did it anonymously, so no one would know, right? And that's how my parents were. I remember another time I came home, and my parents had matching armchairs. This is after we, I got married, come back for a visit. I'm like, where's your armchair? It's, it's missing. Well, they had a friend who had really bad back problems. It was the only chair he was comfortable in, so he left with the chair. Um, I remember another time that I came on my, my stepmom. She called it the heirloom Christmas. And she was really just sensing, I think in the greater family at large, maybe not the immediate family, just maybe a, too much of a love of things. And she, she wanted to be a godly example. And so she gave us all an heirloom. And my stepmom is like a mom. She is incredible. I, have, I don't know how to sing her praises enough, but I didn't, she didn't marry into the family until I was 19, 20. I didn't expect her to give me her family heirlooms. You know, I thought maybe she'd want to give them to her sister. I never met her grandma or her great-grandma. I have her favorite antique Pyrex bowl that they made their turkey um, stuffing in for Thanksgiving every year. I don't know what Becky has, but I know she has something. She just went through and gave all of her favorites. She gave her favorite things. In fact, Lisa's philosophy of life is if I don't want to get rid of it, it's probably a sign I should do it now. She's given away all her fiesta wear before. She thinks she loves it. She gives it away, right? And then I just think, do you create a habit of denying self and giving to others? Do you create a habit in your life of denying yourselves in order to give to others? And do you plan God into your money? When you're planning with your money, um, we had a, a man who discipled my husband, and at the beginning of the year, he wrote out all of his giving checks for the year because he was on salary, so he knew what his monthly check was going to be, and he gave the percentage he'd done. He wrote it all out so that the first thing he did at the first of the year was plan God into his money. And it hadn't all come in yet. He didn't give the checks until ever the month came, but he, it was a mental exercise for him to just tangibly think what belongs to God. As we think about our money, Remember, the next event on God's calendar is the judgment. He's coming back. That's the next major event, right? That's what we're all waiting for in redemptive and redemptive history. That's next. Are we using our money to advance the kingdom, or are we storing it up for an end that could be today, <laughs> right? Again, retirement and savings has a place and is good. Not, I don't, I'm not saying you shouldn't have it. You should. But money, w heavenly wisdom concerning money. Love God, not money. Use your money for the kingdom and others more than self. And then when God blesses you, enjoy his blessings, right? It says he gives blessings and adds no sorrow with it in Proverbs. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy the blessings of the Lord, but even that's an acknowledgement of him and that it's from him and you're loving the gift, the giver more than the gift, right? So the next point is heavenly wisdom concerning endurance. Heavenly wisdom concerning endurance. 
Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And, you know, our, my Bible at least has a break here. There's a little title and another one. So you don't, but this is, he's talking about these people who are suffering under the oppression of the wit, rich, right? And suffering under their mistreatment. He says, be patient and wait on, in your suffering until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. So this is, James now, for the rest of the, of the chapter 5, he's going to be repeating all the themes he opened up with. Suffering. Now we see suffering. He's going to talk about speech next. He's going to talk about enduring to the end. These, it's bookends with chapter 1 here. He's, he's wrapping it up and tying a bow on it. And so he's going to give us wisdom about endurance. And I picked endurance instead of patience because even though the word patient or steadfastness, if you're in the ESV, is used over and over again, a lot of translations use patience, but a better understanding is this definition of patience, that patience is to abide under and endure the circumstances. So we often say the patience of Job, and Job's going to be an example that James uses, but a better translation would be the endurance of Job. There were times where Job despaired. There was times Job wanted to die. There was times Job complained, but he never turned his back on God. He never said, he he ultimately put his trust in God and ultimately trusted God's character. He endured under the trial, right? And that is the picture we're supposed to have here. So when we're in suffering, we are supposed to be patient. And patience is enduring under that. But patience is hard, right? Patience is not something we are inclined to do or we want to do. Um, There was a a famous pastor named Philip Brooks. He was noted for his poise, his contentment, his calm. And one day a friend saw him agitated and kind of worked up and and he said to him, he said, what's wrong? And he said, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't, right? And isn't that how we are when we're impatient? We need it fixed now, but God's timing is not ours. And that produces agitation and anxiety and fear. We're not waiting on God's timing. I think sometimes, too, we can think of patience as a punishment, right? Like, I don't think we think of it positively, but Christ is waiting. God isn't punishing Christ. Christ is waiting for the full number to be saved of his bride. He's waiting to have his bride. He's waiting to come again. He's waiting for the perfect time. If your Savior can wait, we can wait, right? We can follow his example of patience and endurance. Patience is the first and highest attribute of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. You know, a good exercise is to go through 1 Corinthians 13 and put your name in the place of love. Katie is patient. Katie is kind. Katie. And if it's not true of you, <laughs> then there's the reflection of where you're at and how you're loving how you're loving others. And so he says, be patient because the Lord is coming. That's our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope for this world and for our lives and for all the wrongs and injustices and evils that are happening is the Lord is going to come. And we saw this all through our study the past few years. And he's going to reverse the curse and make it right, right? The Lord is coming. And so we have to trust his timing with that. Just like the farmer plants or sows but can't control the rain, he trusts God to send the rain. We need to trust God with when he's going to bring about his justice. Some of you are living with injustices, injustices that may not be resolved in this life, right? These, the day laborers, maybe they didn't get their justice in this circumstance. Can we resolve ourselves that the injustice in this, in this life may not be dealt with until the Lord's return? And then can we wait on the Lord and endure evil for a season? That's what we're being called to do here. And it's called, too, to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord. Is your heart, do you work, do you even think, about, that, was, that really took me, like, do I think about establishing my heart for the Lord's coming? How many of us woke up this morning and said, Lord, could today be the day you come? Because we're commanded to pray that he would come, and we should long that it would be today. And if you prayed that, I don't want to sound, if you prayed it, it's probably because you're in a hard circumstance, and if you didn't, it's probably because you're not. 
and that's just a general characterization on the church in America. I'm not trying to like wrongly point fingers. I don't pray that enough. But there have been times I've prayed it, always when life is really hard. And then life gets a little bit better, and you kind of want to have, well, I want to do this thing, or, or you just enjoy your life, right? And there's not a longing for the Lord. So do we love this life more than we love our resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth, and we're longing for that? Because every day we should cry out, Lord, could today be the day? And establishing our heart for longing it, even in the good times, even in the good times. And so then we are given, um, this, so we're told to wait patiently, and then going back to those things, we're told to not grumble as we wait because the judge is at the door. It, it, in God's timing, <laughs> this morning I had my student in their class, and I normally have somebody with me, but I had to run downstairs and get, um, actually I had to get a drink of water and then come back up because I was just cotton mouth teaching. So I told them to stay in their chairs and not move. Run downstairs, come up, and I kind of waited at the door to hear what was happening in the room before I went in. And then I opened the door and didn't say that I was there. And of course they're running around, right? Of course they're not obeying. But then one by one they see me, right? And all of a sudden they're in their seats and they are quiet. I didn't say anything. They just saw me. And that's kind of a picture of what's happening here, right? We can sit here and grumble and complain, but if Jesus was at the door and we turned over and saw him, we'd stop talking, right? But our judge is omnipresent, right? And he's omniscient. He knows everything. And we're not getting away with anything. And he's coming soon very soon, even today. He could even come today. So what do we want to be found doing when the Lord returns? And he says, follow the example of Job. Be like Job in being patient by trusting the character of God. You know, Job lost all his wealth. He lost his children. He lost everything. But do you remember when we studied Job, the three things Job wished? He wished for representation before God. He wished that there was someone who could forgive his sins, give him redemption, and he wished for resurrection. He was trusting, and then in the end he says, for I know my Redeemer lives, right? In the end, he'll stand on the earth. In the end, Job comes to, he never has an answer for his suffering that we know of. It's not recorded anyway. But he trusts the character of God, and when God comes to talk to Job, what does he say? He doesn't say, here's my plan. You didn't understand. He says, here's who I am, Job. Here's who I am. That's what he gives him, his character. And then we're to be like the prophets, we're to be patient like the prophets in doing God's will, right? They patiently obeyed God's will, and many of them never saw the fruit of their labor, right? I think so often we think, oh, they're not going to hear me. I, I could go talk to that person, but it's not going to make a difference, and you could be right. Um, but Jeremiah had to go to a people who would never, how many of the prophets were told to go to people who would not hear, would not see, and would not turn around, but they had to go anyway? We're called to obey and trust God with the results, not to base what we're in our obedience on the results we think could happen. Right? So those are our first two points. Heavenly wisdom concerning money, heavenly wisdom concerning endurance, and now heavenly wisdom concerning prayer. Um, just a note, because of this passage, uh, the, if we ever teach this again, we're doing this in at least three sermons. I'm just going to make a note on um, chapter 12, uh, verse 12, excuse me, um, about the oath. This does not mean you can't take an oath in court. It does not mean you can't take a vow. It means that Back the, the, what the Pharisees were doing essentially was crossing their fingers. They were like, oh, I promise I'll do that. I crossed my fingers. Didn't count. I swore by the gold of the temple, not the temple. Doesn't count. I'd, and God's saying, what you say is what counts. Say what you mean, mean what you say, and be a person of your word, and be known as a person of your word in all areas. You say you're going to be there, be there. Right? Keep your commitments. Be characterized by keeping your word. Obviously, we don't control everything. Things happen. Heather was going to be here this morning. Brian's car broke down. Doesn't mean she's not keeping her word, right? But we, we do the best to keep our word, okay? 
Um, and so then going on to the prayer of faith. There's seven verses here, and prayer is mentioned seven times. We're have heavenly wisdom concerning prayer, verses 13 through 20. And it says, any one of you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praises. Is anybody, anyone among you sick, let him call to the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And then it says, and the prayer of faith will save him. Um, it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. The prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. He, and then farther down, he prayed and heaven and earth gave rain. Prayer, prayer, prayer is the emphasis, excuse me, of this passage. In his commentary on this, I'm going to read um, from... I think it's Alec Moiter, he says, neither suffering nor ease, right? So if you're suffering or if you're cheerful, right? Neither suffering nor ease should find us without a suitable Christian response in prayer and song. Our religion should cover all experience, finding expression in prayer or praise as the occasion may demand. John Calvin puts it well when he comments that James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. To pray to him is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs. And to praise is to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances. Whether as the source of supply in need or the source of gladness in our joy, God is our sufficiency. Our whole life, we might say, that we should be, our whole life, we might say, should be so angled toward God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upward at once into his presence. In particular, this is an exercise in glad acceptance of the will of God. This is the common denominator of prayer and praise. In praise, we say to him, your will is good, perfect, and acceptable. This is what you have done for me, and I rejoice. And as for prayer in times of trouble, it attempts, however poorly, that we may succeed to copy the Gethsemane prayer of Jesus in saying, not my will, but yours. In every circumstance, we are to be angled toward God, trusting his sovereign care and thanking him for what he gives us. Then he turns and he says, how to pray for people who are sick, right? And this is a passage that, we can't do justice to in this time. It has been um, taken by like every cult and wrongly applied. And so they're so wrong. The Charismatics have butchered it, and the Catholic Church has butchered it, and people have taken this, and, and, and we can't dig into all of it. So one thing I'd love for you guys to do, Pastor Brian taught on this on Wednesday nights. You can go onto our website, and you can listen to him on this passage. He does a great job talking about it. So I just want to talk just briefly, again from Rick Holland, on a theology of healing okay, a theology of healing. And here are a few things before we talk about this passage we have to understand about how God works in healings. And number one is that God has sentenced everyone to die because of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Everybody dies except for Enoch and Elijah. Even Jesus died. Everybody dies. Jesus didn't heal himself from death. Jesus conquered death. The apostles died. Faith healers die. So this is not a prayer, and this is not a text that can say, you do this right, you do the right formula, and everyone always gets healed, or no one would die, right? There will come a time when we die, and there is not a prayer of healing that will override that. Number two, God is able to heal, but not always willing. God is able to heal. It's never a question of God's power to do it, but sometimes he wants us to suffer. Um, it says in the Gospels, the, the disciples said about a blind man, who sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus said, he was born blind so that I might be glorified, the Father might be glorified, right? You, God can have a purpose in our, sin, in our suffering and our sickness that he wants us to go through and endure. Three, God is more interested in spiritual health than physical health. God is more interested in spiritual health than physical health. We spend so much time and money and effort and energy 
I mean, the beauty industry is basically trying to say that the curse isn't happening to our bodies, right? And I'm not, I, I wear makeup, I'm not saying you can't, there's never a place for it, but it's a whole industry trying to reverse age, right? But they can't take the beats of your heart away and make it stronger. They can't, they, they can't re redo it. And we have a whole world in society that is, if you're natural enough, if you're um, healthy enough, if you eat this way, if you eat that way, and even all these natural eating plans contradict each other, right? If you only do the fruit diet, if you only do the keto diet, if you only do no whole grains, if you only do, you'll reverse the curse. No, you won't. No, you won't. There is not a diet plan that will keep you from dying, right? And yet we spend time and energy and so much money. And I'm not saying, I've had cancer, I work out, I eat healthy, I do what my doctors tell me. I'm not saying, again, like, oh, it doesn't matter how you live. <laughs> I do think there's a stewardship to your body. But we take this to some extreme. I wonder how many of us put the same spiritual effort into our lives that we do the physical. And that's a question to just think, what are the priorities? Because God cares more about your spiritual life than your physical health. Four, God sometimes uses sickness and suffering to deal with sin. Not always. You have to be very careful with this. Everyone who's sick is not in sick because of sin. But the Corinthian church was. They were taking communion in a sinful way, and it was leading to death. Um, our spirit and our bodies are not separate from each other. Right? God created us as a whole being. And if I'm anxious and worried and fearful and I get high blood pressure, it's because there's right. I'm a spiritual and physical being. And if I... Um, don't get enough sleep, and I'm impatient, which is a spiritual effect. Spiritual, the physical affects the spiritual, and the spiritual affects the physical. Okay? We can't get away from that. And then five, God sometimes uses sickness to glorify himself and to mature believers. Going back to chapter one, right? The, the, the steadfastness, steadfastness will mature you, will complete you. Okay? So as we come to this illness, this, and the people, the elders coming to pray over them, one, this is, this is not I have a cold and the elders have to come pray over me. This person is so sick they can't go to the elders. This is a homebound person. This is a hospitalized person, right? This is a serious illness. And they are to pray over them. And, number, and one thing we need to remember is God does heal still. He might choose not to, but he does still heal. It's not wrong to ask for healing. So people take this extreme and go, oh, that was for a different time. It doesn't apply now. God still heals people, right? But it's his discretion and his will. And so the person who's coming to pray, um, Dr. Varner says, the prayer of faith is best identified as knowledge of God's will for a particular situation when no scriptural guidance is available, resulting from such divinely imparted knowledge as, in, as an individual may confidently expect that outcome as, re, as, revealed will, as revealed will occur. Such a gift comes because of a word from God. Consequently, when prayer is offered, an attempt should be made to ascertain the will of God in order to pray most appropriately in this context. The elders or the righteous person, because of their experience, wisdom, and righteous lifestyle, may be best able to offer such a prayer. Such a prayer is to be offered by one who has taken time to tap God's resources of wisdom and to appropriate it to a particular situation. So we pray. We have, you have godly, wise people who understand God's word and how to apply it, and when it's not perfectly clear in the situation, they ask for God to give clarity in his leading, and they pray that way, right? And it takes wisdom and discernment to do that. And then it says, after that, because some of these sicknesses, some, Job did not sin, and that's not why he was suffering his physical ailments, right? There's many illnesses that just comes because we live in a broken, fallen world, or because of what God's doing. But there is some sin that comes from sin. And so if you're under that discipline, it says, therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed, right? So how do, what does this mean we're supposed to confess our sin to one another? John Stott gives some helpful guidelines for this that I wanted to share because I think this often 
gets wrongly applied. And so the first thing is the offender needs to confess to the offended, right? So I, the, whoever offends, you need to, con to confess to the offended person and to God who you have offended. Secondly, secret sins are confessed to God. That, and to clarify on that, that means if I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I'm just so jealous of Becky and I just really wish I had her gifts and oh, I just, I had this jealousy in my heart toward her. And she doesn't know and it doesn't come out in our relationship. And maybe I sat, read James 3 in my devotions and I repented of it because it was wrong. And it never impacted us. I don't want to go up to Becky and go, I was really jealous of you. Please forgive me. And in fact, doing that could create problems. Now, that has happened to people where they had no idea there was a problem between them and a person. And that person comes up and confesses all these evil thoughts they'd had about them. That is not helpful, right? That's what we're talking about. Don't do that. You send in your heart, confess it to God, make it right. If it's affected, if your thoughts have affected your relationship with that person, then you could go and make it right. But if it hasn't affected them and they don't know, confess it to God. This doesn't mean that if you're struggling with a sin, like often the analogy is used of pornography, probably not as applicable to women's group, but it doesn't mean, oh, that's a secret sin, I can just not get help. No, you need to go to the appropriate person to get help with that, right? But the next point is private sins need to be confessed privately. So maybe you have a sin you're struggling with and you go to an older, wiser person to help you with that, to get accountability with that. But there was a time when we were in college um, I don't know why this was happening. It just kind of seemed to be like this fad for a little while. And they, we had a Bible major at our college, and there was a sermon prep class, and who, the best three men in the sermon prep class would teach in chapel. They each get to teach one time. We called it Spurgeon Fest. Um, these young guys who were growing up to be pastors someday. And there was a time like all of them would get up there and confess they were addicted to pornography. Well, that's not helpful to publicly confess to, a, you know, a thousand people in a chapel. I don't know you. I don't know how you're going to repent. I don't know if you're going to walk with the Lord. I, I don't know how that, like, th there's just nothing profitable for me to know this. And I remember it happening time and time again, and finally people, like, the leadership was like, you cannot, and they thought they were being vulnerable. They thought they were exposing themselves in a helpful way. They thought they were being, they, they meant, had good intentions behind it, but it was not helpful, right? So private sins privately, okay? Public sins publicly. There are sins that everybody knows about. There are sins that happen and you can't hide it. There are pastors, right, that the nation knows how they sinned, right, because it's in the newspapers. Public sins have to be confessed publicly, okay? So offended to the offender to the offended, secret sins to God, private sins privately, public sins publicly. And then finally, it says we're going to have wisdom on turning a sinner from the error of their ways. And this ties, again, I think, to this passage because we're looking at confessing our sins to one another, and then you have one who wanders. And most often, this is actually one who is not a believer who's leaving the church. But you can have people for seasons of life who are truly saved, who live in disobedience, right? And so our job is to call them to repentance. And if we call them to repentance and we bring them back, then you're keeping them, when it says it, it, um, it covers like a multitude of sins, you're keeping them from a multitude of sins. If you're walking in obedience and you're coming back, you're keeping them from all those sins they'd be committed back then during the time of, of rebellion. And if they're not saved, you're bringing them into, you know, and you go witness them and you call them to repentance because you're bringing them into the knowledge of God, right? God's using you as a tool and that will save their soul from death. The emphasis of this whole passage, though, is repentance and restoration. And when you want to help someone repent and restore, one principle I'd like to throw out there is you want to keep the circle as small as possible. There are times, church discipline, church discipline takes, if somebody is unrepentant in the process of church discipline, eventually it gets shared with the church. I'm not saying there aren't times for, but the more you expose sometimes someone's sin out there to everybody, the harder it can be for them to come back into fellowship. The harder it can be for them to have good relationships with people. Some people are not mature enough to handle their sin. 
right? Um, so you could have a woman who's had an abortion and you could have somebody who's can't comprehend that and, and she knows that woman's done that and she'll just never love her, right? Because of her own immaturity, right? So you wanna keep the circle as small as possible for the benefit of the person to repent, right? So that they can have, as they're walking, they're not being, they're not carrying around the luggage of their sin, but they're living in the newness of forgiveness of Christ has given them, right? Um, so as we come to the end of this book, I don't know if you noticed, but remember, James is, oh, sorry, I just saw my notes. Pastor Brian said here, this is a, also another strong argument for being involved in the local church. It says it takes a church to remain faithful. He said that in his talk on this. It takes a church to remain faithful. So as we come to the conclusion of the book of James, this was the first epistle written of the New Testament, and so it's the first one another's that we have. And it starts here in chapter 5. We're to pray for one another, right? We are to confess to one another. But even in the verses where it doesn't say one another, it says, is anyone among you? Many times. This is how the early church was to be characterized and how the church today is to be characterized as a praying church, as a singing church, as a healing church that wants people to walk in repentance. Remember that the only people who mature are teachable people. The only people who mature are teachable people. So as we go into the break, right, and we're, we're going to have a break. Well, next week we come back for the fellowship time, but we won't have a lesson. And then we have a break until January. Sometimes we want to go on and do something new. But maybe what we should do is go through James again. It's only five chapters. Maybe go back through your le lessons because there was so much that was practical. We can't be applying it all because we're not able to do it all at one time, right? And so think about where God wants you to grow. And as you go through the holidays, I was thinking about this. Does Coraline ever mark your family get-togethers in the holidays? Think James 3. <laughs> are we filled with the, the strife and the jealousy and the competitiveness? Or are we going to be the people who go into our family holidays marked with peace and meekness and produce a harvest of righteousness? What about greed during the holidays? right? That, that happens around Christmas, maybe, for some people. Um, just thinking about not loving riches, but looking to others' people, others' needs. Prayer. Maybe with the extra time that you have, spend more time in prayer, right? If you're not maybe doing as much on the lesson, but reviewing it and reviewing the passage, spend more time praying. And I think sometimes the holidays, as much as they're wonderful, can actually sometimes highlight grief and suffering in our life. Remember to endure in suffering. Remember that Christ is coming, and pray that today would be the day. Pray that 2019 would be the year. Pray that if that's not what you really want, that God would make that the desire of your heart. That we could pray that. And then come back ready to dive into Proverbs because we are not done with wisdom literature. <laughs> We're not done with the wisdom God has for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you.